Hello, and welcome to the NLP Highlights podcast, where we talk about interesting work in natural language processing. This is Matt Gardner and Walid Ammar. We are research scientists at the Allen Institute for Artificial Intelligence. Okay, today our guest is Dirk Covey. Dirk is an associate professor of computer science in the Department of Marketing at Bocconi University. His research focuses on computational social sciences. He's interested in integrating sociolinguistic knowledge into NLP models. And today we're going to talk about this new paper titled Increasing in-class similarity by retrofitting embeddings with demographic information. Welcome to the program. All right, thank you for having me, guys. So this work is one step in a direction that you're passionate about, which is all about making NLP about people again. Could you tell us a little bit more about this? Yes. So yeah, this is something that I'm really interested in. NLP is great and has achieved a lot of things by modeling language as a computational problem, as an engineering problem, which can be addressed with a variety of models. But the thing we sometimes forget is that language is actually spoken by people and it's it's a social phenomenon. It's a social construct. So it has a couple of quirks and idiosyncrasies that make it very different from, for example, signal processing or, or other machine learning tasks. Because it also is a moving target. Language keeps changing. Language is very different between different people. And a lot of my work focuses on pinpointing exactly which variation in language affects our NLP models. So things like age or gender or where you're from. And on the other side, uh, on the other hand, to actually incorporate some of this knowledge to make our models both more performative and hopefully fairer because they can accept the fact that you know, language changes over time and between people. I now work in a social science environment, so I work a lot with people for whom language is a signal. So they want to use some data that they have to find out something about society. And they sometimes have external knowledge that they want to incorporate into that. And so this whole work on retrofitting. Uh, there's this paper that we're currently discussing. There's another paper that uses it uh, out at, also at EMNLP. And I have another paper where I laid the foundation and sort of outlined the idea before uh, this one came out a, a couple of months ago at a workshop. And this all goes in that direction because it turns out that retrofitting actually allows us to incorporate a lot of external non-linguistic information in word embeddings for example. And so this paper is sort of the proof of concept where we show that if we use retrofitting, we can actually capture a lot of information that's not necessarily present in the text that we're working. Yeah, that's very interesting. Uh, could you tell us a little bit more about the task that you uh, you try to do in this paper and what the data looks like? So in this paper, we show how the model works on two tasks, both of which are from author attribute prediction. So we look at predicting author age and author gender from text. So the data we're using is from another paper I wrote a couple of years ago. It's basically review data where people post online reviews and we have information about their age and their gender. And in this case, we're basically treating age as a discrete variable. So we're trying to predict the decade somebody's in. Are they in their teens, in their 20s, 30s, 40s, 50s, 60s? So what we're doing here in general is we're trying to take the word embeddings that we've used on the training data and then increase the similarity within each of the classes that we have. So for example, for age prediction, we have 10 classes and we're trying to make people within each class, speakers within each class, more similar to each other. So the idea behind this is something called homophily, which is also sometimes translated as birds of a feather flock together. 
What that basically means is you have a lot in common with people who share the same sociodemographic attributes as you. So people who are of the same gender, of the same age, from the same region, have the same kind of education. You are very similar in many ways, and that is reflected in the way you speak. So when we learn word embeddings, we can capture lexical similarity, people using similar words, similar constructions, similar linguistic features. But in this case, we also know something else about the people in our training data, namely that they do have the same age. They're in the same age group, for example. And so what we can do with retrofitting is to say, okay, we've learned author embeddings, we've learned document embeddings with Doctovec based on the words that people use, and we represent each of the people in our training data as a vector. But we can now move these vectors around a little bit in the embedding space to make them more similar based on the class information that we have. So now that I work a lot with social scientists, I sometimes have to explain things a little bit more graphically than you know with computer scientists. So what I say with embeddings is, imagine you have fridge magnets. Right, so each fridge magnet is uh, one of the people in your data. And now you get to move these fridge magnets around on your imaginary fridge so that people who talk about similar things are closer together. And you do this a hundred times, a thousand times, until you're sort of satisfied with the distribution of magnets on your fridge. Uh, only that what we have is actually a 300-dimensional fridge. So we can actually make a lot more of these clusters. That's an excellent summary and a nice way to visualize it. <laughs> so uh, let's dive into the, the details then. So each author is represented by however many reviews they, they wrote in this data set, right? And then you use Doc2Vec, which is an extension of Word2Vec, to, to embed these documents or these authors, right? And then you have an embedding for each author, which you try to retrofit. Could you tell us a little bit more about, because uh, I, I think some people may not be uh, aware of what, what retrofitting really means. Mm -hmm. So the basic idea behind retrofitting is to increase the similarity between embeddings, word embeddings originally, in this case document embeddings, uh, the same principle applies, based on outside information. So in the original paper by Faruqi et al., they use dictionaries, or what they call dictionaries, uh, outside semantic information from ontologies, from uh, from WordNet, from the PPDB, to say, all right, here is the representation of some words in our embedding space. However, I happen to know that this set of, let's say, seven, eight words actually are synonyms of each other. So I would like the representations of them to be even closer than they already are in embedding space. And so retrofitting is the process by which you iteratively draw the embeddings closer together in embedding space by essentially several times multiplying the original embedding of each word with the average, the centroid over its neighbors in the, in the new retrofit embedding space. Right, so and in your case, the, what, the edges, the things that connect people, is actually the label that is given to them in the training set. But you could also use other signals that you know about these authors. Would this help at all in uh, in the setups that, you, that you've been experimenting with? Yes, absolutely. So we did a couple of changes from the original paper. There, they basically used semantic lexicons to change word embeddings, to retrofit word embeddings according to that semantic information. We sort of take the same approach, but we apply it, in this case, to author representations, to document embeddings based on some external information, non-linguistic information 
information that we happen to have, in this case, the classes. And yes, we basically construct for each person a graph and say, okay, this person is connected to all the people in our data who are in the same class. So for all the 20-year-olds, everybody who's a 20-year-old is connected to all the other 20-year-olds. And so we're trying to draw all of the 20-year-olds closer together in the bedding space, all of the 30-year-olds, all of the 40-year-olds, and so on and so forth. Would it help to add also additional demographics that you're not targeting for this task? My understanding is that you have different models or you do separate retrofitting for when you're trying to predict the age, you use the age signal. And when you try to predict the gender, you only use the gender signal. Would it help to use multiple signals at the same time? That is a very good question, yes. So theoretically, this should be possible that we can actually do both. We can we can apply all the external information we have. We haven't tried that yet, but it's on our agenda. And depending on the task, this might very well help. And so essentially what this would address is sort of confounding effects where you have joint effects of somebody belonging to two or three different sociodemographic groups. That means both age and gender influence how you speak. In this case, we did it separately because it's a proof of concept and we kind of wanted to do things very cleanly and and separably. We've since applied the same technique to a couple of other tasks. And this is where it gets really interesting. So this retrofitting essentially allows you to separate out the classes in your embedding space much more cleanly. So when we go back to machine learning 101, we have all these beautiful graphs of like two clouds, one of X's and the other one of circles. And there's a lot of space in the middle and everybody who has a ruler could just, you know, lay that ruler in between and say, okay, this is the decision boundary. And in real life, that is never the case, right? Things are extremely messy. And so what we're trying to do with this retrofitting is essentially just increase the space between the classes in our embedding space. Presumably, you're optimized. If you're using a neural network, you the network already has the capacity to do this, except the optimization may be harder. You're making the optimization easier by doing this. Exactly. This is essentially a pre-processing step. So it is separate from the process that induces the representations. So in this case, Doctovec or Word2Vec. And it is separate from the, the classification algorithm, right? And But it is exactly how you say we're giving a neural network or a classifier in general a leg up by making the classes more linearly separable and thereby basically infusing some outside information into the representations. Now, you could do the same thing within a network in the class of graph convolutional networks you're basically learning the same thing you're essentially learning this retrofitting matrix sort of one step at a time as part of the the training process but it takes longer it's it's more costly and in this case we sort of save the model some of that trouble by basically preparing the embedding space beforehand and making it easier in the end to find a, a linear decision boundary So I'm trying to understand some of the details of how this actually works and whether you are improving linear separability. But I think to dig into this detail, we need to talk about one more aspect of what's in your paper that we haven't mentioned yet. And this is the transformation that you learn from your original space to this retrofitted space. Can you tell us about that? And then I'll ask you some questions about it. Yes. So one thing that differs between what we're doing and the original work is that we essentially are trying to learn a way how we can induce retrofitting from the training data on the training data. We can learn a retrofitted version of the training data. 
And then we want to be able to apply that same transformation from the original space to the retrofitted space on unseen test data. And so what we are doing here relatively simply is we're taking the original embedding space and then we take the retrofitted embedding space and we're learning a least square approximation between these two. And we find that this least square approximation, which itself is just a translation matrix, can then be applied to unseen test data, provided that the test data has been produced by the same embedding or representation learning algorithm as the training data. So as long as we have a way to produce representations of new unseen data, we can then apply this translation matrix to get the class separability that we've learned on the training data. Yeah, and I guess this is an issue for your work where it wasn't really for the original retrofitting to semantic lexicons work because the prior work just used side information that was un, that, that was not cheating. It wasn't using the class label itself, whereas you're using the class label, which means I can't do this at test time. I need, I need some other way. Right. So what I wonder about is linear separability, because what you're doing in the end is a linear transformation on the same data space. How does that change linear separability? It's just a linear transformation. Well, what it does is it increases the in-class similarity and it should increase the separability or improve the separability uh, within classes. So in the limit, it should hopefully be linearly separable. Uh, we're currently discussing with a couple of people who are in machine learning how this could be set up in a framework where if you apply retrofitting iteratively, then followed by the translation matrix and do that over and over again, you would theoretically, in the limit, arrive at, at a point where the classes are completely linearly separable. Uh, but this is something we're, we're currently exploring. So when I say linearly separable, I, that, that's probably a misnomer. I should say trivially separable or more easily separable. Yes. Yeah, looking at the math in your paper, I was wondering what exactly is going on here. You have this parameter that changes a mixture between the doc to vec vector, like your original representation for each author, and your neighbor representation in this retrofitting objective. I guess if you set that zip parameter to zero, such that you, you ignore your original vector, like in the limit, this is going to converge to basically a class label vector. And then if I learn a transformation... I'm basically just doing prediction itself, right? That T is itself a logistic regression to the class. And then you, and your prediction is doing another logistic regression on top of that, which should, as you say, be trivial, right? Because they're already basically trying to be predicted to these centroids. So in the original paper, there are weights attached to the original embedding space and the retrofit space that can sort of control how aggressively we retrofit in each iteration. In the original paper, they basically introduced the weights but left them as is. We modified that a little bit by basically saying we want to make these two parts complements. So you basically have a sliding scale where you can say, all right, if I set my parameter to one, I will only use the original space, in which case there is no retrofitting, or I can set it to zero, in which case I forget about the original space and really converge to the centroid of my neighborhood. What we found in this paper, or what we try to show in this paper, is that depending on the task, you want a different value for this alpha parameter to sort of 
rely a little bit more on the original embedding space or a little bit more on the information you get from the outside lexicon, from the structural information. And depending on what your data looks like and what the task looks like, that alpha should be tuned on a dev set. So presumably, if you try to fit the translation matrix just for each of the labels separately, you'll get a much better matrix, but you can't apply it to the test set. Do you have a measure of how much better your translation matrix will, would minimize the least squares? It's not a perfect fit. We've experimented a little bit with training either on the retrofitted training data or on the original data transformed by the translation matrix, which is an approximation of the retrofitted space. And we find that the classifier actually performs better if it's trained on the original data transformed by the translation matrix because it's an approximation. So it, it prevents the model from overfitting too much to this retrofitted space. And so uh, the least square approximation itself acts a little bit like a regularizer in this case. But what you say is correct. Ideally, we'd want to learn a translation matrix for each of the classes, but obviously that would be cheating so in transductive learning, that is entirely possible, and it's probably a good idea. In inductive learning, where we want to apply it to a test set where we don't know the labels yet, we can't do it for obvious reasons. I should maybe say at this point, we also tried this on other tasks. So we found recently that it works extremely well for geolocation, but it actually also works, for example, on the MNIST data set. So by using this retrofitting with a translation and then applying that to unseen test data, we get small but significant improvements even on something as arcane or foreign to NLP or different from NLP, I should say, as the MNIST prediction of numbers from images. Yeah, so your your prediction method in the end, at least in this paper, I'm not sure what you did on MNIST, is logistic regression on top of these translated vectors. And so that, that's literally, I have my original vector, a linear trans, translation matrix, and then a linear weight matrix and a softmax. Two linear matrices right next to each other is a linear matrix. And so why does this help instead of like, why, why can't you just learn this in the original, like in, in a weight matrix directly on top of the original vector? Oh, you absolutely could. And I mean, there are ways in which you could do this. This goes back to the graph convolutional learning. In practice, graph convolutional learning has a lot more parameters because now you're trying to also learn this transformation matrix intrinsically. And so it takes longer to converge. You need to do more tuning and you have less control over how this whole transformation is actually working. So in this case, it's sort of like a, a manual pre-processing that makes things easier. I should say, though, that the, the classifier is somewhat incidental to the retrofitting aspect of this. So absolutely, we could have used a, a more sophisticated nonlinear model to use on top of this. Another thing we're exploring right now is to actually, instead of using the least square approximation for the translation matrix, to learn a nonlinear transformation matrix or a network, essentially, that does that. But this is something that, that we're currently looking into. Yeah. The really interesting essence here for me is that the retrofitting process allows us two things. One is we can increase the similarity within classes. But also we can bring external knowledge to bear. So in this case, increasing the in-class similarity, that's not actually external. Well, it's knowledge that's external to the text because it relies here on the label. But we can use other information as well. So we have another EMNLP paper where we essentially show that if we apply 
geographic information to embeddings that we've learned for cities, we can reconstruct uh, dialect areas much more precisely than we could learn them from the raw textual data. So on this point, it's not clear to me why is this better than adding them as additional features in the, the classifier that you learn at the end. You can always add more features in addition to the embedding. That's true. So you mean in the case of geographic information? Well, I mean, in general, you're saying part of the appeal of this method is that it allows you to incorporate more features that are non-linguistic when you're constructing embeddings for construct. And I'm wondering why is this? If the goal is to do classification afterwards, then you can add them in addition so you can concatenate the embedding with other features. You could potentially also do that. In this case, you can bring relational knowledge to bear sort of how the different instances in your data relate to each other right so because it's a graph that you're essentially constructing about the similarity between them or connectedness if you have a binary matrix you can just say are these two connected or not but you can also have a floating point number or you can have a, a continuous value in your connection graph basically expressing that this instance is more or less similar to some of these other matrices it's a very powerful idea, of course. I guess one question that popped in my mind while I read the paper is how expensive is this to do? There's a lot of connections between all pairs of examples of this for the same label. That is an excellent question. And that was something that I was very concerned about at first. Because when I first started playing with retrofitting and the original paper makes an explicit point that it is very fast. And it is for the semantic classes where you have a neighborhood size of five or maybe a dozen. And in this case, if I connect every instance, so we have about 100,000 data points. We look at different training data sizes, but let's say we have 10,000. Uh, potentially, you know, each of my instances is connected to several thousand other instances that are in the same class. So our neighborhoods get fairly big. So in practice, of course, it is slower than you know, if your neighborhood has size 5 or 10, but it actually runs in a reasonable amount of time. So in the paper, what we did is varied the training size from 1,000 to 10,000, and we actually ran 100 independent runs, sampling 1,000, 2,000, 3,000, whatever uh, instances as training data, and then constructing the retrofitting graph, doing the retrofitting, and then learning the translation matrix, and then applying that whole thing to the held out test set, which is the, the remainder of the 100,000. And what we see is that even when we do it for the 10,000, we get relatively fast results. So the training time took between several minutes to maybe a couple of hours. So the way we implemented it was actually through sparse matrices and both constructing and then multiplying those things uh, with sparse matrices turns out to be reasonably fast and memory efficient. We did run into one problem. So now we wanted to apply this to the task of geolocation for tweets and basically saying, all right, each word is connected to all the other words that we've seen in the same place. And so if you have a vocabulary size of 400,000, then, you know, in, in the worst case, you have a neighborhood size of 400,000. So that, that gets really big. We found that up to, I think, 100,000, it was still feasible. It was still workable. As you get larger neighborhoods, one thing we did was to restrict things and say, all right, each word is only connected to all the other words that it has occurred at least twice in the same city. And so that brought down the size of that graph to a manageable amount so that we could actually compute it in a reasonable amount of time. I guess in this particular instance, the set of neighbors is the same for every class, and you could just compute that once up front, right? 
yes, you can do all of these computations upfront, sort of on the training data that you have. So constructing the graph is like one of the first steps. And you can do that a single time. Yeah, in each iteration, in part of your equation, you're computing a sum over the whole neighborhood. Because that neighborhood is actually shared across every instance of every class, you only really have to do it once and you could dramatically speed up your computation. Yeah, because it's the, it's the same for every member of that class. Yes, absolutely. And so that is one of the things that makes it very, very fast because you can keep reusing that average, the mean of that neighborhood. Yes, absolutely. So how well does all of this work? Could you tell us a little more about the experiment that you did and, and the result? Yes. So, I mean, the fact that it uh, was published at, at EMNLP got accepted typically means that things worked, right? Um, so we did look into how well does it work and, and how much better does it work than the unretrofit case. We also compared it to a bag of words approach. Two days after it was accepted and I published a draft on my website, somebody wrote to me and said, oh, I also experimented with like a better bag of words model and you can improve the performance of a bag of, bag of words model but it's still not as good as the retrofit. And I thought, Ooh, okay, good. So what we find is we have two tasks. We have uh, age prediction and gender prediction. And in both cases, the retrofitting does improve significantly in many cases over the unretrofit or the bag of words model. What we see is that on age prediction, where we have 10 classes, we actually see a much, much bigger difference between the retrofitted and the original embedding space in terms of performance of the model. And we see that from using a thousand examples as training data up to 10,000 instances as training data. The level of statistical significance varies. What we did is we basically did bootstrap sampling. Since we're running a hundred iterations with each training size, we're sampling, let's say for training size a thousand, we sample 100 random samples of a thousand classes and we do the whole retrofitting and, and prediction exercise. Uh, and we can compare that to the performance of the original embedding space and basically see how oftentimes is, is it you know much uh, better than the performance on, on the entire data. And so we can also construct uh, confidence intervals and, and we see that for age prediction in particular using a very small alpha so that means relying a lot more on the homophily information, on the age information that we have rather than on the linguistic information gives us about up to two, two and a half F1 points. Uh, for gender prediction, we see slightly smaller gains. They're still significant, but you need to play around with the alpha parameter a little bit to find an optimal case. And one thing I should also probably say is as your training size gets larger, typically the difference gets a little bit smaller. So if you get more and more data, the two methods tend to perform more similarly. So the figures I'm seeing in the paper in figure two, they're very compelling. Uh, and thank you for rerunning the experiments like a hundred times to be able to measure this, the confidence intervals. But you're saying if you drew the curve farther to include the entire data set, the two curves get closer then? So typically what we see is that the two curves for the embeddings and the retrofit embeddings do converge the more training instances you have, or they go towards convergence. In one case, for using retrofitting with a very low alpha on age prediction, it does look as if the convergence would happen a lot faster. So that means even at the largest training size setting we have with 10,000 instances, there's still a huge gap between the retrofit embeddings as input to the model and the regular original Dr. Beck embeddings and then also the bag of words embeddings. Great, that's really cool. Do you have any last comments about this work before we conclude? 
Well, so the two or three points I would like to make is echoing the points of the original retrofitting paper. It's very easy to implement. It's very fast to run. The things I would like to add is that it allows you to actually improve any classification tasks that uses embeddings by separating the classes a little bit more. And the third thing is that we can actually bring outside information to bear which is something that in neural networks oftentimes is a little bit difficult. In graphical models, we were able to use priors or you know, to partially define distributions beforehand. Uh, in, in neural networks, we learn a lot of these things always from scratch. We take the data and we learn everything from scratch, but oftentimes it's not necessary. Oftentimes we have prior information, we have outside information that can help us to structure the input space at least and then make it easier for the model to find a good solution. And so retrofitting is one of these ways in which we can actually make it easier for our networks, for, for our nonlinear models to find a good starting point and to find a good solution. Yeah, I'm uh, really excited to learn more about the results that you have for the other. Where, where was the other paper? was also at EMLP. The other paper is also accepted at EMNLP, where we're actually trying to capture dialects. So in this case, this is not a prediction task. What we're doing is we're actually looking at anonymous chats uh, from places all over the German-speaking area in Europe, and then learn embeddings for each of these cities. And then if we cluster these, uh, and represent them on a map we're looking at do we find dialect regions or you know is there is there no such thing as a dialect online what we see is that there are very very clear distinctions between different regions and what we see is that if we modify the document embeddings for the different cities that we found by using geographic information so by saying okay look all of these cities are close together so it's very likely that their dialects or the, the words used there the language used there is more similar to each other we actually get very, very good results and actually match sociolinguistic maps, dialect maps that have been made by sociolinguists over the years. Oh yeah, and maybe I should say the name. Uh, so the paper is with Christoph Porske and it's called Capturing Regional Variation with Distributed Place Representations and Geographic Re Retrofitting. Sounds really cool and exciting. Uh, we'll look forward to it. Thank you for joining us today. Thanks so much for having me and uh, thanks for listening.